do you know that a uh, a church is truly of the Lord? That it's really God doing what's happening there and, and not just men with clever strategies? How do you really know? And that's a question I think many of us, if not most of us, have asked from time to time, especially when you look for a church or you wanted to find a place where you could worship, where you could connect and fellowship. How do you really know that that church is of God? You know, what's, what's, the, what's the test? What's the measure? How can you really tell? I mean, you can watch people going there. You can talk to people. You can try and get a sense of things. But is there a practical way that you can know for sure that this people is led by God? I, I ask myself that question here at the bridge. Lord, how do we know we're really doing what you want us to do? How can we be sure that we're on the right path and we're not on a critical path, as, as Tom said? How can we know that we're not messing it up, getting off center and off base? And I think probably the most simple answer that we can probably come to is prayer. Is the church a praying church? Are you as a believer in prayer before the Lord? That's the way that you can know that you're on track and that you're heading the right direction. Are you in prayer? Are the leaders of your church in prayer? Does the pastor not just pray on Sundays, the, the kind of same old prayer week after week, but is he a person of prayer? Are you a people crying out to God and talking to Him and seeking His divine inspiration and seeking truly His leadership in the world in which we live? Prayer. It's very, very simple and yet very practical and powerful. I have been in churches where prayer did not take place except on Sunday mornings. Where staff would get together and no prayer would happen. Where ministry teams would meet and prayer would be an opening or a closing, but it wasn't anything having to do with why they were meeting. Prayer for the sake of prayer. We, we got together on Wednesday night and spent some time just praying, and it was wonderful. We're going to do it again this next Wednesday, and I'll explain why in a few minutes. But this morning, as we look at the passage before us, Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. The picture here is a picture of prayer. Let's read this. Beginning in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, so he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. And thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner, or Jehovah Nisi. And he said, The Lord has sworn, and the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning not only that you give us insight into this passage, but that you will place a burden on our hearts for prayer. To be a people of prayer. Men and women who are caught up in prayer. Who, as Paul wrote, pray without ceasing. Who are constant in our conversation with you. 
always seeking, Lord, to know your will in our lives, your will for this church, for our families, for us as individuals, and not our own will. May we become a people of prayer. Father, help us to sense your spirit as we study through and to know the things that you want us to know. Spirit, guide us this morning and be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the oldest book in the Bible ever written? The oldest book ever written. Anyone want to venture a guess what that book might be? <laughs> You're all afraid to say anything because you think it's not going to be right, don't you? Would you say maybe Genesis? Okay, who thinks Genesis? Let's just do a show of hands. Some of you are going, oh, no, I'm not going to put my hand up because you're going to tell me that it's not. You're just trying to get us, Rick, aren't you? No, I think it is Genesis. I think it is. Now, there are, there are some who say the book of Job might be the oldest or at least written contemporarily to Genesis. It might even have been written before. They're not sure. But Genesis certainly is, I believe, the oldest book. But which passage is the oldest passage in Genesis? Anyone want to venture a guess? <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 verse 1? I don't think so. <laughs> I think the passage that we just read together is the oldest passage of scripture written in the Bible. I think this is it. It's the first one written. Because Moses was told by the Lord in verse 14 to write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. The Lord told Moses to write this this passage, this story of Amalek, before Moses went up to Sinai. You see, when Moses went up Mount Sinai and received the law from God, he also at that time received the Torah. Those first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also called the Pentateuch, the Jewish Torah. He received it from God on the mountain at Sinai. But here we read that God said, write this down. And I believe that Moses did just that. He wrote it down, that this was kept in Moses' personal parchment, his notes, if you will, prior to Sinai, that we have before us the oldest section of Scripture written by the hand of Moses, which brings us to an important hermeneutical principle. Just wanted to say the word hermeneutical. There's not many words as good as hermeneutical. What, what, what are hermeneutics? What is that? Hermeneutics is just a fancy way of saying the method or principles that you apply to Bible study. How do you approach Bible study? Some people's hermeneutic might be that it's all allegory. And so as they study the Bible, they just look for pictures and they say, well, it didn't really happen, it's not real, it's not really applicable, it's just a bunch of metaphors and allegory. That would be a hermeneutical principle. It would be a wrong hermeneutical principle, but it would be a hermeneutic just the same. We've talked about a few of these principles. One of them is the principle of first mention. We talked about it a lot through the book of Genesis as we studied through because there were so many times when something was mentioned for the very first time. And what this principle states is, if you're confused about something in Bible study, if you're not sure what a passage means, go to the place in the Bible where it is first mentioned and you will often there find insight as to what it's all about. Now that being the case, if this is the first passage and we apply the same principle to it, then wouldn't you agree that this passage is of great importance? If this is the first thing that God had Moses write prior to Sinai, prior to writing out the law, then this must be incredibly important to us. It must have some great significance for us 
as we study through the Bible and trying to understand what God wants us to know. And there are three powerful pictures that I drew out that I see in this passage that we'll look at this morning. But you need to understand something first. Before we get to those, you need to understand Amalek. Because Amalek and the Amalekites, Amalekites? The Amalekites. <laughs> These guys were some of the most brutal in history. And every time Amalek is referred to or talked about in Scripture, he is a picture of something, and that is the flesh. Amalek is a picture of the flesh. He's a descendant, a descendant, actually the grandson of a man who you might remember named Esau. Esau, who of all people in the Bible was truly the picture of the flesh. You remember Jacob and Esau, don't you? We studied them a while back. Jacob, though he was kind of wimpy, was still more the spiritual one of the two boys. Esau, on the other hand, was a meat lover. He was carnal. He would have loved chili con carne. He was the guy who wanted the red lentil stew. The, the red stew that got his nickname, Esau, which means red. He sold his birthright for it. You remember, he was a picture of the flesh. And in the New Testament, he's referred to several times as a sign or a symbol of the flesh. We see in his life that whatever he saw, he wanted. Remember that. Okay, Amalek, his grandson, on the other hand, was a chip off the old beef. In fact, his people were among some of the most carnal in history. They were a brutal people. They were a nasty people. Amalek's name, by the way, means lapping up others. Lapping up others. That's what Amalek means. In other words, in a battle, he would whip you. <laughs> You'd be history. And the Amalekites were intimidated by no one. Others in the region, when the Israelites came through the Red Sea, other peoples all around were scared to death that this people had a God so powerful as to lead them through the sea. Exodus 15.15 tells us all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away in fear. Except, that is, the Amalekites. They're too busy planning a sneak attack on Israel. They will be the first people to actually attack Israel to take them on en route to the promised land. Now let me remind you of something. The history of Israel in the Bible, though completely accurate, is not just a history. It is also a guide, a book that helps us understand. It's a schoolmaster. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, what happens to Israel is like a schoolmaster or teacher for us in our time. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Man, take that to heart. Let him who thinks he stands take heed. I'm a good Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm at church every Sunday. I read my Bible all the time and I pray. Be careful. Take heed. The person who thinks he stands, lest you fall. Because like Israel, Amalek may attack. The flesh may attack. Flipping your Bibles over to Deuteronomy chapter 25. While you're flipping there, Deuteronomy chapter 25. read you a couple of other verses here. Amalek, this picture of the flesh in the Bible. Numbers 24, verse 20 says, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. Philippians 3.18 says, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. 
whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. But listen, listen to how Amalek works. Listen to how the flesh works in our lives. It's important to understand this key principle. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 17. God is speaking to Israel through Moses. And he says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you, listen, all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. That's a bold statement. He did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies. In the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Interesting. You want to blot out his memory, but don't forget it. (laughs) Remember what he did. Blot out his greatness, his grandeur, the fact that he was the first of nations. That is not to be known, but what he did, don't forget. What is it that he did? He met you along the way, verse 18. He attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. The Lord tells Moses, man, when you get into the land, I want you to wipe out Amalek because he is bad news. Why? Because he's a wimp. Because he is a coward. Because he attacks the stragglers. Because his method of operation was to hide out and wait till most of Israel had gone by and been attacked in the rear. The women, the children, those who were tired, those who were weak, the sick, those who couldn't be up at the front leading the grand battalion of people, but the rear. Attack where they are weak. Go after the back of the pack. Nail the stragglers. In other words, when a person slipped back, settled to the rear, loses focus on the leader, that's when they become the most vulnerable. And you might say, well, I've done the Bible study thing and I've been to prayer meetings. Man, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a real involved Christian. I have been for so long. I've even got a couple of Bible courses <laughs> under my belt. I've done very well. But I'm a little busy in my life right now. I'm a little too busy to engage with God in things like prayer. I don't have time for that that church stuff. Uh, I'm just going to coast for a while. Oh, I still believe in Jesus. I just need some space, some time to coast. And Amalek attacks from the rear. When we're in those times of weakness, of weariness. And again, it doesn't matter if you've walked with the Lord for four months or 40 years. It doesn't matter. The reality is as long as we are human, Amalek can attack. The flesh can overcome. As long as we walk in these bodies with these imperfect beings. Amalek can attack. And that was their strategy. That's the way of the flesh. Attacking our undefended feebleness. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, it is from the world. But the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Listen, if you want security in the life you're living, security in the Father, if you want to be front and center with the Lord, then engage in the things of the Lord. That is the safest place. Now, I'll just tell you, the safest place to live your Christian life is front and center with the Lord. That's where you want to be. Not coasting. For it's when we coast that we are in danger of the attack of the flesh. It's when we sit back. It's when we just relax and go, I'll get there eventually. That's when it's dangerous. And I believe the Lord wants us to understand these things. That's, by the way, part of the reason, I think I've shared this before, that I'm a pastor. 
Because I had just enough intelligence when I was 16 years old to know that if I wasn't a pastor, front and center, engaged and involved with the Lord, that I would be most likely one of those in the rear. That I would be weak and feeble, that the things of life would overcome. And literally there have been choices I've made in my life where I said, no, I, I got to die. Cheryl and I, back in, it was in 1988, were not going to church anywhere. Totally, totally believing in the Lord. But just disengaged. And we made a decision living up in Fullerton, California, to move down to Irvine, closer to my home church, because I knew if I missed my home church, my parents would know. <laughs> I needed some motivation to get there. We got involved with junior high ministry because I knew if I had to teach a junior high class on Sunday morning, I would be there. We got engaged. Well, we were engaged actually before that, her and I. But we got engaged with the Lord. And my encouragement to you is to be engaged, front and center, with the Lord. Because you may be attacked. And when you're attacking your front and center, guess who's around you? All the body of the Lord. The fellowship, the family, the strength. And it's what I personally need. I don't know about you. Maybe you can stay at the back and be a straggler. Your pastor cannot. I've got to be up in the middle of things where it's going on. It's the only way that I can defeat Amalek. So Israel's about to be attacked. And here we see the potent point. Here we get to prayer. Again, go back to Exodus chapter 17 and verse 8. Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. We talked about this Wednesday night. Rephidim means rest stop. Israel comes to a rest stop, and that's where the attack happens. Verse 9, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now I imagine some of Israel thought, What's going on with Moses? You're going to leave us here? You're going to skip out while we have to fight this battle? That's not really fair. What kind of a leader are you? He was the right kind of leader. He was the right kind of leader. Because while Joshua was intervening with the sword, Moses was interceding with the Lord. And that's where he needed to be. While Joshua was engaged in battle, Moses was engaged in prayer. While Joshua was in the valley of opposition, Moses was on the mountain of intercession. By the way, what mountain is this Moses was on? Who is Mount Horeb? also known as Sinai, the mountain of God. Moses goes up that mountain to intercede. He holds a high, a lock, his staff in his hand. And as long as the staff is up and the hand is up, Israel is victorious. But as the staff begins to come down and the hand gets weak, oh, Israel begins to fall apart. Verse 11 tells us that when Moses held his hand up, Israel prevailed. When he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Verse 12 tells us, but Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. Do you see the picture here? Moses on top of the hill, above the battle, hands up, holding on to the staff of God. Aaron on one side, Hur on the other side, holding up his arms that are old and tired and a little feeble. But the arms stay up and as long as the staff is up, the arms are up. The people of God are victorious. What better picture do we have of prayer? The potency of prayer. And that's the first picture to write down if you're taking notes. The potency of prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. What does Paul say? I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. Holy hands in prayer. He's on the mountain, Moses is. He's reaching to the Lord. He is open-handed, by the way, to receive from the Lord. 
And as long as his hands were held high, victory was imminent. But as his hands came down, the flesh reared its ugly Amalekite head. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. Recite it to Joshua. Why does the Lord want Moses to write this and recite it after it happens, after they're victorious? God says, write down what happened and keep telling Joshua about it. And you tell him over and over why, what was so important for Joshua to understand. God wanted Joshua to know how the battle was won. And gang, the battle was not won by Joshua's ingenuity. It was not secured, victory was not secured by Joshua's ability. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts or armies. By my spirit. That's how the battle is won. That, Israel, is how you defeat, defeat Amalek. That's how you win. By my spirit, not by your strength, not by your plans, not by your abilities, not even, unbelievably, not even, listen to this, not even by the use of the sword. The sword. The Bible speaks very powerfully that the sword is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 declares this the word of God to be sharper than any two-edged sword. And Ephesians 6.17, Paul says, Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The use of the sword, the wielding of the sword, the handling of the sword is not what wins the battle. You might go, now wait a minute, that sounds contradictory to the kind of teaching that you do, Rick, and that's true. I so often talk about the importance of Scripture. You know by being here how much Bible study matters to me as a pastor. That we be a church that is in the Word. That the Word is incredibly important. As God says, my Word does not come back to me empty. It accomplishes what I set it out to accomplish. But even the sword, even the Word of God can be rendered impotent when the hands come down. There are great pastors and preachers and teachers in the world who are great men of the word, but whose churches go nowhere. Why? Because the hands have come down. Again, we can be students of the word all day long, but if we are not connected to the author, we will miss what the word is about. We will miss its power, its ability to change and work in our lives. Folks, what we're talking about here is prayer. Intercessory prayer. If that is a big word for you, all intercessory means is interceding. It's coming before. It's coming to the Lord on behalf of. Whether it be on behalf of your church. On behalf of other believers. On behalf of those in need. On behalf of yourself. Intercessory prayer. And nothing, mark this, nothing is more important in the Christian life than the way and the time that you pray. It is more important than the study of the Word of God. God says, I will elevate my word above my name. So we're saying that that connection in prayer is of greater importance even than the word. Because if we're not listening to the Father, how are we even going to know what his word says? If we're not in training through the Holy Spirit in intercession, how can we wield the sword when battle strikes, when Amalek attacks? Listen, if you want to stay front and center with the Lord, rather than fall behind in the time of attack, your key, your answer is prayer. It's talking to the Lord. Is life hard for you right now? I mean, today, this very day, are you in the middle of something that's just, it's not going well for you. It's difficult. It's stressful. Have you prayed? Have you just stopped and said, God, I 
can't do this. Normally my first thought is increase your time in Bible study. Open the Word. Get into it. God hit me over the head with my Bible this week. The Bible says it's important, Rick. The prayer. Talking to me. Being connected to me. This is what matters even more so. There's an old adage you've probably heard, and that's prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. I'm not sure that's true. I think it's more that faith changes things. But prayer, prayer changes me. Prayer changes you. Matthew 7, verse 7. Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And you need to understand, we've talked about this, but I want to make sure you get this. Jesus does not say, It's everyone who asks once, and seeks once, and knocks once. The language is very clear. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Why is it that when I call out to God, He doesn't respond? You ever in your life pray and ask the Lord to do something and to rescue you in such a way and nothing happens? And you're sitting there going, is there really a God after all? Maybe He's just busy. Maybe he's doing something on the other side of the world. Maybe the tsunami has just got him a little too busy right now on my knees and stuff. I don't know, but he's not answering. I'm getting silence on the end of the line. If you've ever been in that place, understand, God may not be answering your prayer, may not be responding, may be leaving you in silence for one specific reason. There's more to prayer than invocation. Prayer is about transformation. It's more to prayer than just calling out to God. Because in that relationship of prayer, God wants to change you, to mold you, to make you more like Him, to deepen your faith. Wednesday night, we gathered to pray. If you got my email last week, I sent it out. And I just said, you know, all day Tuesday I was studying for Wednesday night Bible study. And I kept coming back to this, we need to pray. We need to pray. I mean, we don't need to do all of chapter 17. We'll just stop at half and just do a little intro and let's spend some time in prayer. And I was convicted, gang. Tuesday, all day long, I was convicted, wow, something's going to happen. Something big is going to take place. God wants us to be in prayer because somehow His Spirit's going to move. And Wednesday night, something's going to go on. And so I thought, wow, we got we got to pray. And so all day Wednesday, I'm, I'm excited. You know, it's coming up. And we're going to pray tonight. And we're going to have a little less Bible study, more prayer. And, and God's going to reveal something to us. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be big. And we got in here and we prayed. And gang, it was precious. It was wonderful. We, we huddled together. We talked to the Lord. We listened. And when it was all said and done, I had peace. And I went back down to the house down here. And I sat down in the chair and I went, nothing happened. Lord, this was not what I expected. I thought you were going to tell us something. I thought there would be some grand revelation. Something exciting that was going to be the next new thing for the bridge. And there wasn't. We just prayed. We were just before the Lord. Thursday morning I woke up and this was bugging me. Because you know what? I programmed the whole Wednesday night for something special to take place. And God didn't show up. At least based on my plans. Well, during prayer time Thursday morning, I was asking the Lord about this and saying, God, what happened? You didn't show up. Or if you did, I missed it. It was wonderful. It was sweet. It was nice. But where was the grand revelation? And I kept hearing a word in my head over and over and over. I believe it was God. And that word was more. 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 Wednesday night was wonderful. 
But God is not into one time shot in the arms. He's not into show up and we're going to be holy for one night, everything's going to be great, and then go back to your life. More. More. Prayer is about transformation. It is about changing us. So this Wednesday night we're going to do some more. And the next Wednesday we'll do more. If we need to, we'll just continue to do more. We need to pray more. Can you imagine what it's like on this on that side of heaven? That God is, is, is longing for relationship. That's what all of this walk in Christ is about. Relationship with the Father. And as He longs for that relationship, He's just waiting. By His grace, He doesn't force Himself on us. He just waits for us to come. And it doesn't matter, by the way, if you come to the Lord in prayer with eloquence and you have it all worked out and you say just the perfect thing. It doesn't matter. He just wants you to come. He just wants more. More. And it's in that more that we begin to be transformed, that we begin to see our life with Christ as a relationship and not as a duty. God wants to develop in us a passionate longing. We sing the song, Breathe. It's one of my favorite songs. And every now and then we'll sing that on Sundays or on Wednesdays and we, and we get to the chorus. And it's a very moving song. And I, I am desperate for you. I, I am longing for you, we sing. I'm lost without you. And when we sing those words, I, I feel it. But are we, are we desperate for Him? I mean, are we really desperate for Him? Are we in that place of desperate prayer? That place of non-immediate response, where we really feel the need, where we pray and pray and pray, and God is not answering, and we begin to get desperate for Him. See, I think that desperation is something that pleases the Father. My desperation pleases God? Yeah, because it draws us closer to Him. We lean further into Him. We get closer to where we want to talk to Him, hear from Him, be next to Him. And He's not answering. We're like, Dad, do you hear me? Closer. Father, I need you. Closer. Lord, would you intervene here? Closer. And all the while, God's just going, come on, get closer. I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm going to take care of the need. But for now, what you need more than an answer to prayer is you need to be transformed. You need to be changed in your life. That sounds kind of tiring. Sounds a little exhausting. It may very well be. It may be. It certainly was for Moses. And so we get a, a second principle here that we can see, and that is the partnership of prayer. The partnership of prayer. Everybody needs a Moses, every Moses or everybody needs an Aaron and a her. Or an Aaron and a him. Either way it works. An Aaron and somebody else standing beside you, holding up your arms in prayer. Everyone needs this. James chapter 5 verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. For seven months we were in a season of prayer, Cheryl and I were. Seven months prior to the beginning of the bridge. Because seven months prior to the beginning of the bridge, we thought we were going out of state to, to another ministry. We didn't know really what the Lord's plan was. And we began to pray and we had six people who prayed with us. Mike and Leslie, Mark and Susan Harris, and Jeff and Penelope. And we just, on just different times, we'd get together and say, well, let's pray about this. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. 
And Jeff, you remember this. We would get together, and, and even if we went out to a movie or whatever, ever, whatever we were doing, we'd come back to the house, and before they left, every single time, you remember this? We huddled at the front door, and we prayed about it. And sometimes we prayed for a little while, and sometimes it was really short, but we were always in prayer about it. And I was just thinking about this the other night, when we were hanging out with you guys. But we had a great evening, hung out, and they left. And as they left, I went, when was the last time we just prayed? And see, I wasn't, I'm not in a season of need now. Back then, I didn't know what was going on. I needed it. I needed it. God, I'm desperate. And so prayer was right on the front of our lips. But now, you know, things are going fine. We pray on Sunday and Wednesday, right? It's good. Desperation in prayer. The partnership of prayer. It makes such a difference to me in my life when I know people are praying with and for me. And if you're having trouble praying by yourself, praying alone, then partner up. I would say if you're married, then your number one prayer partner is your spouse. Please don't go looking for another prayer partner, especially of the opposite sex outside of your marriage. That is the way for Amalek to attack. Right there. Prayer. It's potent. Partnership of prayer. The third thing to jot down and the last thing this morning is the person of prayer. The person of prayer. Consider this again as you see this picture Moses up on the hill. Look at this. The man on the hill holding high a wooden pole interceding for Israel. A man on a hill held high on a wooden pole interceding for the world. We see a picture of Jesus, don't we? Of Jesus on the cross. As Moses holds up the pole, praying to God and interceding, so Jesus was lifted up. And he said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, all men toward me. And we see this amazing picture, but, but Jesus didn't weaken. Jesus didn't let go. He endured. He stayed on the cross to intercede for me. But listen, and don't miss this. Don't leave Jesus on the cross. Because he did not stay there. His crucifixion was a once-for-all deal. Once because it was powerful enough to save all. Too many people leave Jesus up on the cross. They put him there. And while there is great power in the death, there is even greater power in the resurrection of Jesus and in what Jesus is doing for us right now. What's that? Well, verse 15 tells us the Lord built, Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. How long has the Lord sworn to make war against Amalek? From generation to generation. This is a long-term, ongoing battle. And if Amalek, folks, is the picture of the flesh, then that war continues today. The Lord has sworn to make war against the flesh. And he is still making war against Amalek right now against the flesh. How is he doing it? Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, listen, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing for you and I right now in heaven, for you and me? He's praying. He's praying. Right now, this moment, even as Amalek may attempt to attack, you may be a little weak in prayer, faltering in prayer, but Jesus is still praying for you. And never forget this. Unlike Israel, 
Jesus is not praying for victory. He's not praying for victory. Jesus is praying from victory. Because He's already won.